Recovering Fundamentalist podcast begins in three. These podcasts, <laughs> podcasts, that sounds like a convention of beans or peas to me. I, podcast. Listen, and these recovering fundamentalists, they don't know the Bible either. What are the fundamentals? Inerrancy, virgin birth of Jesus Christ, Amen. substitutionary atonement, Amen. bodily resurrection Amen. of Christ, and the authenticity of miracles. Hi, man! Two. I am not a recovering fundamentalist. They're everywhere. They're all over the internet. They want to be, uh, what do they call it? Recovering from fundamentalism. They're everywhere. And I think to myself, well, you were just stupid to begin with. And if there's such a word, you're stupider now. We ain't recovering from nothing good, neighbor. We're reviving from the Holy Ghost. Somebody say, Everybody wants to focus on recovering. Oh, you're recovering. Oh, you need help. You need therapy. You're recovering. Let's focus on fundamentalists. We're recovering fundamentalism back from people who have hijacked it. We are biblical family. We are the fundamentalists. Man. That'll make a Baptist want to speak in tongues right there, boys. One. I'm going to tell you one thing. Uh, We better stay uh, in the old paths. But what are the old paths? I've heard that my whole life, and nobody's ever been able to tell me what the old paths or the old time religion really is because it's whatever era you Mm -hmm. overly romanticize in your mind as being when the church was right. Mm. Like it, lump it, pump it, jump it, take it across the street and dump it. We've raised a generation that is ashamed of our forefathers and act like they were somehow done wrong in the way they were brought up and they were damaged and they were scarred because they were raised in a home that had standards and convictions and kept them on the old time way. You got their number, boys. Y'all thought you started the podcast. You went and started a movement. Thanks for joining us for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Make sure to stay tuned at the end of the show to hear more about the RFP sponsors. Now, here's your host for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, Nathan Cravat, J.C. Groves, and Brian Edwards. Church family, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I want to introduce our guest preacher. Before I do, if you have a smartphone and you would like to have this service shared, maybe some of your friends are dealing with the King James Only position. Uh, We just went live right before the preaching, so if you want to grab your smartphone out and hit share for our services, that would be great. Well, it's good to have Nathan Cravat with us. Nathan is part of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. And just a little history of how I got to know um, Nathan and the guys that are on the podcast. I was pastoring a church out in the country a few years ago, and I kid you not, I was looking up sermons, and I wanted to see some IFB sermons. I I typed that into the search bar, and the RFP came up. I was like, what is this? Recovering fundamentalist. And I started listening to what these three guys were saying, and a lot of it resonated with my soul. A lot of the traditions that were going on in the movement that I was a part of, that also this church historically was, was a part of. And one of the big issues that a church faces in this transition, if you will, is Bible translations. Is it okay to use modern versions of the Bible? And I can remember purchasing my first ESV Bible, and I was almost like afraid to tell anyone about that. Never thought I would be standing here behind this pulpit um, holding one. That might sound silly to some of you that have no idea what the IFB is, Uh, but this, what we're tackling this morning is so important for the church, that it is okay to use modern translations. Um, I think it was about a year ago, Nathan was involved in a debate um, and 
When I, when I watched the debate, I began thinking how great it would be to have Nathan come into our church, present this to our ministry, just to show our church why it's okay. So, Nathan, it's good to have you with us, brother. You come up and preach for us. Thank you, Austin. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's an honor and a privilege to be here this morning with uh, some dear friends and with a lot of new people that I've, some I've met already and some I haven't met yet. We even have some friends that have driven in from uh, quite a distance to be here and I think there's a lot of people joining us online as well. So it's it's an honor and a privilege to be here and thinking about the importance of this church. We just recorded a podcast the other day talking about the history of Pastor Brandon Neal and Austin Wiest and this church. And uh, thinking about the church and all the growth and the changes that have happened over the years here. A couple years ago, Pastor Neal was the first to take off his tie on the platform. And... That was in the midst of some radical growth, and just a couple years later, and even more growth, uh, we stand here this morning with a new leadership team, and they have suit coats on, and I've got a vest and, and uh, a suit, and so I'm wondering which direction we're leading the church. I, I think we might be going back in, in the other direction, and if I understand my assignment correctly this morning, he brought me in to make sure that everyone here today is King James only. Is, is that correct? That's, that's not correct. So seriously, I'm honored to be here, and uh, I'm honored to be here to talk about the Bible. And the Holy Bible is the written record of God's self-revelation to his creation. The Bible reveals God. He chose to reveal himself to mankind by using men as his instruments. He could have revealed himself any way he chose, yet he chose to use men as his instruments to record his thoughts, his nature, his purpose, and his plans. Our eternal, holy creator breathed out his perfect words into the minds of imperfect human beings who wrote his immortal words using mortal hands. They wrote imperishable truth using a quill that would rot, ink that would fade, and parchment that would decay. And across the centuries, God has preserved his word miraculously using common and unimpressive means to accomplish his supernatural and perfect ends. That's the God we serve. I believe that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament are God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect, and holy words. I believe that God created the world in six days as recorded in Genesis. I believe in an actual worldwide flood. I believe that the miracles that are recorded in the Old and New Testament are true. I actually believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish and spit back out just like the Bible says he was. I believe Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God. I believe in the sinless life, the supernatural miracles. I believe in his deity. I believe in Jesus' substitutionary, atoning death on the cross. 
I believe in the bodily resurrection, ascension, and imminent return of Jesus Christ. I believe that he is King of kings. I believe Jesus is Lord of lords. I believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I believe there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. I believe in two genders this morning. I believe we're called to respect every image bearer of God, but I believe we're also called to share the gospel with them. But I believe in marriage between one man and one woman, two genders. I believe that God is sovereign over his creation. I believe that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. That makes me a theological conservative. Some would even call me a fundamentalist. Some might even say I'm recovering. Yet, even though I believe these orthodox cardinal doctrines of the Bible, of the Christian faith, I have been called a liberal, a compromiser, and an apostate. I've been told in many very colorful ways that I'm a fool, an idiot, a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and that I'm going to hell and taking a lot of people with me. Why? Because I do not accept or believe a man-made doctrine about the Bible that cannot be found in the Bible or proven by the Bible. I reject man-made doctrines. The things I mentioned, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the substitutionary atoning death, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, and salvation by grace through faith, justification, all these glorious doctrines of the church, they can be clearly seen and found in Scripture. They can clearly be seen and traced throughout church history. And we hold to them as Bible doctrines. We don't get to invent doctrines. And if we do, they're false doctrines. They have to be proven not by obscure, taken out of context passages, but by the clear, overarching story of Scripture. Scripture attests and testifies of its own truthfulness. So we believe the doctrines of Scripture. I love the King James Version of the Bible. Most of my memorization as a child, all of my memorization as a child, and most that I quote now in this sermon, I'm sure I'll quote scriptures. And when I quote them from my memory, they're King James. And I love the King James. It's a faithful translation. But I reject the doctrine of King James onlyism. It teaches that the King James Version is God's only inspired and infallible and inerrant word for the English-speaking people. Some people even go beyond that and say that everybody, if they want the real Bible, they need to learn English. I reject that. It makes a 17th century English translation, 17th century English translation, the standard for all of God's words. It is not the standard and it can never be the standard. It's a translation of the standard. They teach that anything that disagrees with the King James Version or even words things differently changes God's word. This cannot be proven with scripture, so they result to many different tactics 
or conspiracy theories to prove this. Anytime someone has to take you somewhere else besides God's word to prove their Bible doctrine, that's a red flag. That's a big red, red yeah. flag. They teach things about a pure line and a corrupt line. When I actually started studying what I was taught growing up was the pure line. I found out that all the manuscripts didn't match in the pure line, in the Textus Receptus line. There is no line of manuscripts that exactly match each other. And that's okay. That's how God planned it. We have what we've always had. I've seen men demonized who are associated with the supposed corrupt line. I've seen men associated with the King James Version elevated beyond measure. I've seen numerology used to prop up King James Version onlyism, and it's too ridiculous to even mention this morning, so I'm not going to go into detail. Other conspiracy theories that are easily disproven. The kindest King James Version onlyist adherents call modern versions watered down. That's about the kindest thing that they can say. Some go further and call them corruptions. The next level is to say that they are perversions. And the final and most extreme position claims that people cannot be saved from anything except the King James Version. King James onlyism goes beyond what Scripture teaches about itself. It actually, many. Aspects of it actually claim that the King James Version is superior to the original Bible in the original languages. And if you've never been exposed to that, that sounds like I made it up. I promise you, I did not make it up. Sure. This position limits God. It is an elitist position. I believe it's associated with Gnosticism that wants some further knowledge beyond what God has actually given to us and revealed in his word. It undermines the original manuscripts and earlier translations that the King James Version is based upon. It promotes re-inspiration or double inspiration, which is very problematic, and it cannot hold up under its own standards. And I want to show you a few examples of this this morning. Here's one tweet that came out. That you can see the date there. But he lists Luke 2.33 that says Joseph and his mother in the King James. He says the King James text clearly notes that Joseph was not Jesus' father. Father. However, the NIV, ESV, ASV, RSV all say his father and mother, making Joseph, not God, Jesus' father. This verse is a commentary of the Holy Ghost, not like Luke 2.48, which is Mary's words. So... He claims, and, and at first glance, this looks like this is a really big problem. The thing is, the King James Version does the exact same thing in Luke 2.48, where it says, Behold thy father, and I sought thee sorrowing. Which is more problematic, when Luke writes the words, or when Mary, Jesus' mother, actually says the words? Now, we all know that when someone adopts a child, what does that child call the man? Their father. Even without adoption, many times a father figure will be called a father. Yet they make this out to say that this version is trying to disprove the word of God. And yet the King James Version does the exact same thing. 
He says this is one of many, many examples where the Laodicean lukewarm last days apostate church has stolen the deity of Christ in their new, updated, easier to read and understand perverted versions of the scripture. The King James Version does the exact same thing just a few verses later. This one says, as it is written in the prophets, Mark 1, 2, the NIV, ESV, New Living Translation changed the word prophets to Isaiah, then proceed to quote a verse that isn't even in Isaiah, but rather in the prophet Malachi, making a liar out of the scripture, par for the course for these corrupt pieces of garbage. Talking about my Bible, this ESV Bible that I use, that I love, that is God's word. The interesting thing about that is in Matthew 27, chapter uh, Matthew 27, verses 9 through 10, the Gospel of Matthew quotes a passage from Zechariah but attributes it to the prophet Jeremiah. The King James Version does the exact same thing. Why did it do? Does that prove that God's word is not true? No. In the Hebrew Bible, the, the minor prophets were grouped under the major prophets, and a lot of times they would refer to them by the major book that, that preceded that. So it was, uh, it was an understanding of how the scripture was organized in the Hebrew Bible. The King James does the exact same thing that other versions do. And then this one is the most interesting to me. And this is the final tweet I'm going to share this morning. But he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, as we see in Luke chapter 4, 4, AB 16, 11. He says the NIV, ESV, and New Living Translation all remove the last part of this verse, the every word of God part. Hmm. Reckon why? Because the men who put these versions out never believed that anyone could have every word of God. By the way, this is what an AB 1611 looks like. He, he wasn't quoting the AB 1611. You, you, you can barely even read that. So let's look at this. Let's see if what he's saying is true. The King James Version, Luke 4, 4, and Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by, by every word of God. In the ESV it says, And Jesus answered him, It is written man shall not live by bread alone. And if you stop right there, it really looks like maybe he's on to something. Because I want to tell you something. I don't want anybody changing my Bible. I don't want something taking, some, taking something out or adding something in to the Bible. So what do we do with this? Do we just say, okay, burn all the other translations. Let's just stick with the King James. Well, it goes a little bit deeper than that. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, 4, it says, But he answered and said, uh, uh, him is left out. It is written, man, it leaves out that shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, hold on a second, that proceeded, proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So by this standard is Luke chapter 4, verse 4, leaving out God's word, changing God's word. The King James only position cannot stand up to its own Standards that can't hold up underneath its own standards. And even more interesting than these verses, if you go back to the verse that Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, 
It actually says, man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So both of the verses in the King James Version New Testament, according to King James onlyism, are changing God's word. These are just a few examples of tricks that we see where people are trying to say something that is not true. King James Version only proponents count words many times to prove their position. Has, have anyone, has anybody seen someone do this before where they say how many words are in different translations? So I want to show you this. The King James Bible uh, has 7, 783,137 words. If you look at the New American Standard Bible, it only has 782, 815 words. They've left out, according to King, King James Version onlyism, 312 words. Well, I don't want anybody leaving out words in my Bible, so why would I use that? Well, let's move on to the New King James Bible. 770, 430,000. They've left out 12,707 words. English Standard Version, by this count, leaves out 25,698 words. And the NIV leaves out 55,168 words. So by this standard... That King James Version only is, quote, against modern versions, does it, does it stand up? Well, how many words are in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament? 304,901. How many are in the Greek New Testament? That This is actually the Textus Receptus. 140,521. So how many words are in the King James Version, Old Testament? 602,580. By this standard, King James Version onlyism's own standard, the King James Version has added 297, 600, 679 words. It's ridiculous that I don't believe this. This doesn't disprove the King James Version of the Bible. They're not adding words. They're translating from one language to another, and you have to clarify because there's no such thing as a word-for-word -word wooden translation. It wouldn't make any sense to anybody. The New Testament, you see the same thing. 40,030 words added in. I want to make a point that there are not... King James Version onlyism is not one single... Type. There are multiple types of King James onlyism, and this comes out of James White's book, The King James Version Controversy. Uh, the first type is the people that are honest enough to say, I just prefer the King James. I like the King James best. That, that's a safe position. That's a good position. I support that position. I'm not in that camp, but I was in that camp for a very long time. The next position, going a little deeper, is the textual argument. Then there's the textus receptus only or received text only argument that gets a little bit deeper. Then there's, there's the inspired KJV group which believes in double or re-inspiration of the Bible. They think that actual translation was re-inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore we cannot change it. It's the new standard. There's no support for this anywhere in the Bible. And then the final one says that the King James Version is new or advanced Revelation. This is what many people refer to as Ruckmanism or being a Ruckmanite when you believe that the numbers and the verses and the numerology and all that makes the King James Version superior. And again, I really don't even want to go into that. 
But we've, I've said all that to lay the groundwork for where we're at right now. I'm here to preach this morning. I wanted to give you a background of why I'm preaching this, but I want to preach from the text. I'm an expository preacher, and if God's Word doesn't say it, I'm not going to believe it. So I'm going to show you where God's Word says what I'm teaching you this morning. 2 Timothy 3.16, this is God's Word for God's people. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I also have it, that's the ESV, I also have it listed out in the King James Version. And at the bottom, I've got what the actual Greek manuscript says. Pasa grape theopneustos. And don't come at me with, trans, with, with pronunciations because I can just probably tell you I just said that wrong. But that's what it says. You can read it for yourself and pronounce it better than me if you want to. That would be great. But it actually says all words or scripture God breathed. All scripture God breathed. How did it get translated into the King James Version? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you see why the King James has more words than the original Greek text? In the ESV, all scripture is breathed out by God. If you look at verse 17 in the King James Version, it says that the man of God may be perfect. What does perfect mean for us? What, what do King James onlyists mean when they say the word of God is absolutely perfect? You cannot change it. They mean without error, without flaw. Does this cause any confusion for anybody reading a King James that they say, oh, if I read God's word as a man of God, I can be perfect? Well, I believe the ESV gives a more accurate translation of that, that the man of God may be complete. That, that's what perfect means in that sense of the word. Complete is a better translation of that. And then thoroughly furnished. How can a man be furnished? That does not make any sense to my 21st century mind. But what it means, if you look at the ESV, equipped for every good work. That's what that word means. We use different words. Languages change. But as we look at this, I see nine things in this verse that are essential if we're going to understand God's word. Nine things in this one verse, these two verses, that are essential if we're going to understand God's word. The first one I want you to look at is Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration or breathed out by who? By God. Scripture comes from God. God reveals himself through scripture. This is the first step to approaching understanding the Bible. You've got to understand it comes from God. Around 3,800 times, Scripture claims to be God's very words. Almost 4,000 times, Scripture says something like, Thus saith the Lord, or God said, or and God spoke. It claims to be God's word where God is revealing himself to mankind. The main reason we should ever read the Bible and the main focus of every sermon Every scripture reading, Bible study, small group discussion should be to learn more about God. That's why it was given to us. That's the primary purpose. We read God's word to discover who he is. I preached through the book of Luke. 62 weeks it took me to get through the book of Luke, preaching verse by verse. And the title of the study through the book of Luke was Discovering Jesus. 
We read that book every week and read the passage that we were in to learn more about who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is because Scripture reveals God. I've got to move quickly. The next one that we see is inspiration. God breathed the very words of Scripture. This is important to understanding this controversy in our time. I just mentioned Pasagrafe Theopneustos. The very words, all words are breathed out by God. Men were not inspired to write the Bible. Men were given God's inspired words. The words are what was inspired. Now, 2 Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense in which men were inspired in a different way by the Holy Spirit to write the inspired, breathed words. But when we talk about biblical inspiration, we're saying the exact words were inspired. The original words were inspired. And there is no exact translation from one language to another. The original words are inspired. They are the standard. God breathed his words. That matters. Because the words don't get changed into English. We translate them into English to understand them in our language. But the original words that were God breathed, they are the standard. Yes, sir. They're a higher standard, a greater standard, a more accurate standard. Then we move on from inspiration and we see transcription. I grew up hearing and being taught and going to seminars about King James onlyism. Never heard this dealt with. But we've got to talk about this before we get to translation. Revelation, inspiration, transcription. God's words were written down at some point. God either breathed his words into the head and the hearts of men. And many times they would speak these words. But at some, time, at some point they had to be written down. This is an important step in the process. Sometimes they wrote it themselves. Most of the time, I believe, the scribes would have written it down as they spoke these words that were breathed out by God. Transcription is a written or printed representation of something, the action or process of transcribing something. So it's important that they were transcribed, they were written down. Next, we see, as we move through these verses, we see transmission. So if these words weren't written down, these God-breathed words weren't written down, we wouldn't have them today. If they weren't copied by hand, because there was no printing press until the 1400s, the 15th century, if they weren't copied down by hand, copies of copies of copies, then we would not have God's word today. And it would not be profitable to us. How can they be profitable to us? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Because they were written down and they were copied faithfully. And this is an important step as we think about the transmission. Because throughout all history, all scripture was written on separate scrolls. Did the Hebrews have the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in one version, bound up in one book, kept in one place? No. Each town, each synagogue, even when they went into exile, different places where they went... They had different scrolls. 
Scrolls read differently. Scribes wrote things down differently. Do you know how they knew what was the right rendering? They would compare the scrolls with each other. And they would find the few. If you understood the Masoretic tradition of how they hand copied these texts, some mistakes still made it through, but they were minor mistakes. And they were easily identified when you combine multiple manuscripts and fragments you could see. It's called textual criticism. It's how God's people have always found what God's word truly said. The original God breathed words. God could have kept scribes from making any mistakes. He could have inspired the scribes to perfectly photocopy using their hands and pens. God could do that. Does anyone in here doubt God is powerful enough to do that? He could have done that. He chose not to do it. Because part of this process is studying and diving deep into God's word and comparing and reading and going back to the manuscripts. Amen. They were handwritten copies of copies of copies of copies. They all had differences. The printing press was invented around 1440 and they still had errors when they started printing the Bibles, even with the printing press. The adultery Bible said, thou shalt commit adultery. It was a King James Version. They printed this, they call it the bad Bible, I think. And it says, thou shalt commit adultery. Well, did they change God's word? Well, they changed it, but it was an accidental error in the printing process. And they corrected it. But they could tell that was wrong because every other manuscript and every other translation before that one said what? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's part of the process. James White said... Perfect Perfection of copying did not exist until 1949 with the invention of the photocopier. Think about that. And when we talk about textual criticism, it has the word criticism, so a lot of people don't like that word, and they say we're criticizing the Bible. What criticism, textual criticism is, is comparing the text. Bible scholars aren't the only ones that do this. All scholars do this. They compare texts of... Homer's Iliad, and, and they, they look to see what different copies say, and there are variations between different copies and different manuscripts. So we're comparing to get back to the actual, true, God-breathed words. The King James translators used textual criticism. The textual, Texas Receptus scholars, Erasmus, Beza, Stephanus, used textual criticism. This is how God's people has always identified God's very words. We have two main competing text traditions. These two will never go away. We have print, we have digital, we have the internet, we have archives, we have the Library of Congress. These will never go away. I've never heard anyone who's not King James only going around to say, burn or destroy the Texas Receptus or the King James versions. We think they're a great translation. We're glad that we have that tradition and it's a part of the comparison process. It makes it better. Yeah. We're always going to have that. It's not going to go away. But it's important to remember that all the version disagreements boil down to less than 2% of the Bible. 
We're fighting and arguing and dividing the church of Jesus Christ over less than 2%. A viable and meaningful variance. Why don't we celebrate the over 98% agreement and yeah. do the hard work to discover and validate the correct renderings on the remaining 2%? That's what textual critics are doing. That's why translations are very, very important. Did you know that the King James Version 1611 had over 7,000 marginal notes? where the translators wrote things in the margin that said, we're, we're not sure what this means. It could be this word or this word. Different types of marginal notes were more literal, literal translations, alternate translations, and textual variants or alternate textual readings. That was in the King James Version 1611. We're just doing what the King James translators did. And I want to thank my friend Timothy Berg for that information. His research on that was incredible. There are actually two different types of variations or, or uh, marginal notes, but I don't think they applied to this talk or this sermon. The preface of the King James Version, written by the translators, disproves the claims of King James Version only as a more than anything else I've ever seen. You should read it. As a matter of fact, there's a book over here that Joshua Barzin did that... that deals with the forgotten preface. Very important book. Buy that one today. So we're moving right along. After transmission, we're still not to translation yet. We're at preservation. And I've got to wrap this up sometime this morning, Austin. I promise. Preservation. God preserves His exact words. The only way He can preserve His exact words are in the language that they were breathed out because there are not exact words translations between many words. God promised to preserve his word in Matthew 5:18, where Jesus said that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until every, everything is accomplished. Three different places in the New Testament, Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God promised to preserve his word, and he does. But does he tell us how he's going to preserve his word? Does he tell us it will always, for every language, be in one version, and that's where you go? No. He just said he would preserve his word. We build on what we think God meant and we make a grave error when we add to scripture. God promised to preserve his word and he does. God's word was specifically given for mankind and it would not be fulfilling its purpose if it were not available to us. So God has made it available. As a matter of fact, it's more available to us than it's ever been available to any generation before. Before 100 years ago or 200 years ago, you, you would be hard-pressed to find an average person who wasn't a king or extremely wealthy that would own an entire copy of the Scriptures. It was absolutely unheard of. It was unthinkable that you could go to a bookstore or go over here and buy a Bible for 10 bucks, An entire Bible. A person cannot be saved apart from the gospel message, which is recorded in God's word. So God records, God preserves his word in order, order for the gospel message to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The doctrines and the truths of the word of God must be preserved. If scripture were not pre supernaturally preserved, there would be no way 
of ensuring the consistency of the message that's contained in God's word. So what is preserved? What does God preserve? The, the exact words that he breathed. That can only be done in the original languages. Belief in reinspiration exposes a very weak view of preservation. If you believe in reinspiration, you have to believe that we lost God's exact words at some point and God did not preserve his word, so he had to do it again. It's an absurd claim. So we have to go through revelation, inspiration, transcription, transmission, and preservation before we ever get to translation. Yet the King James-only controversy centers around what? Translation. They want to pretend like none of this other exists. Like all of these other steps don't underlie the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version doesn't happen without all of these steps. So let's move forward into translation where God's words are faithfully translated to other languages. There are different types of translations. Word for word, where they try to be as close as possible to an exact word for word translation, but it's not possible. So it's as close as possible. And there's a spectrum. You can look it up online. There's a spectrum. And the King James Version is between a word for word and a thought for thought. There are many translations that are way more literal than the King James Version. Yes, sir. I was never told that growing up. So there's word for word, thought for thought, and then paraphrase. The way I think of a paraphrase, uh, no, I don't think it's God's word. I think it's like a sermon where someone's saying, this is what God's word says and means to me, and I want to share it with you. Paraphrases are awesome if they do a good job of paraphrasing, just like sermons are awesome if they're faithful to God's word. But a paraphrase can never become the standard. That, that's never going to become the standard that we look at. It's trying to put it in words where people can understand it. It's doing a further step that we're going to talk about in a minute. So what does the Bible say about translation? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're commanded to do it. We're commanded to translate the words of God into other languages. How else could we teach people to observe all that God commanded the apostles if they didn't write down the words of God in the original languages and then we have to translate them for all languages? There, there are groups right now that are in the process of translating God's word to all the languages in our world that do not have a copy of Scripture. Check out the Joshua Project. I believe that's one of them. Yeah. Amazing. They say that in our lifetime, in the next 25 to 30 years, every single language in the world will have God's Word in their language. Amen. You want to finance something? You want to send money to something? Send money to that. Amen. What do you think is going to happen when all of creation has access to God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ? I think Jesus is going to come back. I think the word of God is going to be fulfilled and we're going to see things happening possibly in our very lifetime. Yet the King James only position wants to restrict 
and add extra steps into translating, I actually, I, I can't even share with you a conversation I have with a missionary in a foreign country, I can't even say what country it is, where he is being subjected through his missions board to share, to, to be a part of translating the Bible into this other language from the King James Version. He says it's a disaster. It's, this guy is part of the King James Preferred group, yet he says it's an absolute disaster. The people in that country, and I almost said it. <laughs> I need to change the topic. The people in that country <laughs> laughed when they read it because it butchered their language so badly, and it wasn't even close to representing what God's Word says. We don't translate from translations. That just doesn't even make any sense. When you translate from one language to another, since there is no exact word-for-word -word translation, you must add words, change words, and even as they did in the King James Version, invent words. It's called transliteration. When there is no English word for a Greek word, baptizo, what do we do? Let's invent an English word called baptism. There we go. We've got a word in the English language now. Many transcriptions, transliterations, but the originals are always the standard. So I've got a question. Do we have the originals? Do we have the autographs? No, we do not have the actual original manuscripts that were handwritten. God could have preserved them. He could have made a floating gold Bible where everybody can come and know exactly what every single... He could have done that. He's powerful enough to do that. He and his wisdom and omniscience chose not to do that. But do we have the originals? Yes, we have the original languages. We have the original words. that have been preserved by God through copies of copies of copies. We have preserved copies of the originals. That's what the church has always had. That is sufficient. That's more than sufficient. It's an embarrassment of riches is what John MacArthur says. The, the textual tradition, the manuscripts that we have, it's an embarrassment of riches and it's embarrassing to argue about some of the things that we're arguing about. We have God's word. Let's praise God for that and dive deeper into it and study it more. So we believe we are certain about over 98% of the autographs. The variants that are viable and meaningful account for less than 2%. And this is what textual criticism covers. Where the manuscript evidence agrees, we all agree this is the original wording. The original words of God. God breathed words. Where it's unclear, we keep studying and searching the scriptures and comparing as we are commanded in scripture to do. This is how Bible translation, understanding the Bible, this is how it happens. And I've went through six of these steps. And I believe these next three, these next three steps should be our focus. I really truly believe once we believe what I've just said, these are the most important. God breathed his words. He preserved his words by his own wisdom and his own means. So now we need to do these three things. The next one is observation. Church, we need to read God's word and study God's word for ourselves. Yes, sir. 
If someone uses a different version, you may think it's inferior, you may prefer a different version, fine. They're reading God's words. Now, there are bad translations. I need to say this. I should have said this up front. There are bad translations that I will warn you against. You need to avoid them. They change doctrines. They change wordings intentionally to mess up doctrine. This is why it's important that we have manuscript evidence to back up the Bible and the translations that we use. Because when someone from, from the Kingdom Hall comes to you and Jehovah's Witness and tells you that their Bible says that Jesus was a God and they show it to you on their printed page, well, what manuscripts are, is, is their Bible based on? We can trace that back and we can see where it was changed intense, intentionally by a false prophet to a false doctrine. And we can show them what the original manuscripts said because we have such a wealth of manuscript tradition. But the importance is we've got to read it. We've got to hear it preached. We've got to study it, church. This is what needs to happen. But you're not going to do that if someone's in your ear telling you that you don't really have God's words. This is a divisive issue in the church and it has to be dealt with. The next step beyond observation is an important step. It's interpretation. God's words have to be understood properly. A child of God can read the Bible and understand it to say something that it never intended to say. That's why we have hermeneutics. That's why we have rules of interpretation that apply to all literature. And they apply to God's word even more because it's so much more important. We must understand it properly, rightly dividing the word of truth, proper interpretation. There are rules we must follow. We believe in a literal, historical, contextual, grammatical, Christological interpretation of Scripture because that's what the Bible teaches. And those aren't all, those aren't all the, the hermeneutical rules that we follow. That's just a few that I'm mentioning. That could be an entire series in and of itself, how to properly interpret God's Word. And then the next step and the final one I'm talking about this morning that we get from this passage is application. This is where God's words are applied to our daily lives. We must live it out. We must obey and walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We must be doers of the Word and not hearers only. These last three steps, observation, interpretation, Application. If you believe you have God's word, a faithful translation of God's word in your language, then observe it, read it, study it, interpret it properly. Be under a solid Bible teacher that is going to properly break down God's word for you and teach you and disciple you in God's word and apply it to your life and share it with others. Yeah. Conclusion. I started out with a statement, and I didn't tell you this at the beginning because some of you would have gotten, gotten up and left. I started out with a statement, a paragraph, that was my entire sermon in one short paragraph. And then I preached my entire sermon, and now I've got a conclusion. So what is the conclusion of everything I've said today? The actual words that God breathed out to reveal himself to us have been written down, copied, and preserved. We have access to study the original languages and we have faithful translations in our language. We are responsible to read it, understand it, and apply it through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Church, this 
is what matters. We have tools today through interlinary, uh, and I, I said that wrong, but uh, Bibles that, that compare the original languages. You can literally, on your phone, click on the original languages and see what each word means and get the full breakdown. We have tools at our disposal that people would not have believed they were possible if we had told them 100 years ago. 50 years ago. They would not have imagined the things that we have access to. The common plowboy, the common average American English speaker can look at the original Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic languages, break it down and see what God's word says and see how their translation ended up with that word in English from the original language that was used. God's word should be translated in the common spoken language. Language is constantly changing, but God's word never changes. But we translate the eternal words of God so that people can understand his eternal truth in their own language. We must be able to understand if we wish to benefit from scripture. My friend Mark Ward always says, edification requires intelligibility. If you're going to grow from God's word, edification you must be able to understand. It must be intelligible to you. I believe that we're called, and this is important, church, as I close. I believe we're called to love our King James Version only, brothers and sisters. We should challenge them, but we must respect them. We must not cower down from verbal attacks or character assassinations that I've seen against myself since my debate before and after. But we should never return evil for evil. I'm thankful for the work of the King James translators, and I'm thankful that the work they undertook is continuing into our day. It didn't stop in 1612. The work continues. We're blessed with many faithful English translations of the Bible, but they're all accountable to the inspired original languages and wording. Church, our focus should be the gospel. It must always be the gospel. God breathed out thousands of words describing revelation, inspiration, and preservation of Holy Spirit, Holy Scripture. God used the prophets and the apostles across multiple centuries, books and chapters, to impress the importance of observation, interpretation, and application of His holy, inspired, infallible, and errant word. God omnisciently chose to remain silent on translation. Why? Because his eternal principles of wisdom, truth, and integrity apply to those who would seek to undertake the important work of translating God's word from the original languages so that all nations will hear the gospel. We must not be distracted from the gospel by those who seek to slander and bring division to God's church. So in closing, what is the gospel? It's the good news that tells us that there is a God, that he is the creator of all things, that he made you and every human being in his image. Yet mankind chose to rebel against a holy God's authority. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God promised to send a savior, a Messiah, a deliverer, 
to rescue his people. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is our God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God became a man. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. He's King of kings and he is Lord of lords. All who call on his name, turning from their sin in repentance and faith, are born again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the proclamation of the gospel. Your sin will be forgiven. You will be accepted into God's family. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He's the only way of salvation. If anyone is here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ, you can believe the gospel today. If you understand the gospel through God's word, you can believe it. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and illuminates our hearts, awakens us to repentance and faith. If that has happened to you, if you are a child of God, if you're born again this morning, you're a part of God's family, then share the good news with somebody else. Had a conversation with a young man before service talking about wanting to share the gospel with people in his community that do not know the gospel, do not believe the gospel, or have rejected the gospel. We get to be a part of God's plan. Listen to that. Salvation is all of grace, all of God. He initiated it, he accomplished it, but we get to be a part of it. How? We're ministers of reconciliation. We get to share the gospel, and through the gospel... The gospel is the power of God to salvation. We, we don't believe that God is uh, salvation is all of God in a sense that we just step back and say, oh, well, it's taken care of. It's done. Let's go to the beach. Let's forget about this whole church thing. No, we get to be a part of it. The Holy Spirit works through the proclaimed word of God. When we share the gospel, Belief and faith, repentance is awakened in the hearts of people that hear God's word. We've got to share the gospel. And I think the pulpit sharing of the gospel should be the minority of God's people sharing the gospel. Because you've got one pastor in this church that shares from this pulpit. If 100 or 120 of you would go out and share it in the community day by day by day by day, you'd reach way more people than Pastor Austin could ever reach on his own. I'm excited for the direction of this church. God has brought you out of the grasp of legalism and is leading you into a season of growth and grace. We have the precious, priceless treasure of God's word. It came at a great cost. We must love it, study it, live it, and share it. Well, amen. <laughs> I want to thank Nathan for coming and preaching. And, you know, I, I got a little emotional during the worship service earlier because I wanted so much to bring this to the church's attention because a lot of the people that have been at Maranatha for a while, you've been, you've been told this almost to a point where you feel guilty for looking at modern translations. But since coming to reading modern translations and understanding more of the word and seeing my girls understand the word more as we're having family worship at home together, 
Um, and, and getting out of that legalistic mindset is freeing. Yes, and uh, Nathan, I just want to thank you so much for coming, presenting that to us. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.